This is a Crossroads International Church podcast, bringing lives together. Please visit our website at xrds.nl for more information about us, our service times, and for other relevant resources. My name is Sean. I'm uh, one of the elders here at Crossroads and also have the pleasure of uh, sharing God's Word with you every now and again. It is so exciting to be here again, meeting in person. I can't tell you how happy I am to be able to share with you in person. The last few times I've preached, it's been in the ministry center, staring at a camera, hoping that I can connect with you somehow. And so it's great to be here in person today. But also, to the folks at home watching, as Randy was saying, from your living room, from your bathroom, out, maybe walking your dog, wherever it is that you're listening in, welcome. We are so glad that you are able to share this time with us. We hope that this is a blessing for you as well. So friends, we are coming to the end of a series that we have gone through in January. We called it Mythbusters. And in that series, we have been looking at some common things that people say about our church, people say about the Bible, about the Holy Spirit. Pastor Paul also for two weeks took us through the book of Revelation and was teaching us some of the maybe misconceptions that we encounter as we read and try and interpret the book of Revelation. So we're in this series called Mythbusters, and today we're going to wrap things up. Before I tell you what the myth of today actually is, let me just remind us what it is that we mean when we use the word Myth. What, what actually is a myth? I googled it. You find stacks of definitions, but the one I really liked was this. A myth is an idea or a belief that is widely held, but is ultimately untrue. Widely held, but ultimately untrue. If you think about that definition, actually there's a lesson for us right there, which is just because a lot of people believe something to be true, a lot of people try and convince us that something is true, doesn't necessarily mean that is the case. And when we hear about things being said about our faith, about God, we've got to check that. We've got to turn to the one real truth, that is Jesus, and and to Scripture where we can find that one real truth. And that's really also applicable to what we're going to talk about today, which is this, and it's a big topic, and I'm glad the room is full today. And the topic is this, do I need to come to church to be a Christian? Or maybe let's turn it into a myth. I don't need to come to church to be a Christian. That's a really big topic. It's a really big topic for church leaders all over the world. Because if you look at the numbers, pure numbers of church members and even attendance of church on a Sunday morning, we've seen over the last decades quite a substantial decline. I saw research done in the U.S. across 15,000 churches between the years 2000 and 2020, and they spoke of an on average 50% decline, 5-0, of church attendance between the year 2000 
and 2020. And that was before COVID. We know as a result of COVID, and we've seen it year two even, that now the numbers are even 30 to 70% of what they were before COVID. So if you take this full period, if you had 100 back in 2000, you had about 50 in the year 2020, and now as a result of COVID, we are around 25, 20, 25, something like that. Huge decline. And so this topic about, do I need to come to church to be a Christian, is, is, is a real live topic for us as leaders of a church. So let's, let's dig into this one a little bit. The first thing I want to talk about is, what do we mean when we use the word church? What does that actually mean to us? Some people may think it's the building. Some people may think it's the church as an institution. Many of you will know that actually the word church has a far broader meaning, and it refers to the people of God. But when I did a bit of research as I was preparing for this morning, what I found fascinating is that actually the word church that we read in the English translation comes from the Greek word ecclesia, like ecclesiastic. And that ecclesia, that Greek word, which by the way is the original language in which the New Testament was written, is used 114 times in the New Testament. Don't worry, I didn't go and count the Greek, but that's what, I, that's what I read, 114 times. And each and every time that it is used, Ecclesia is used in the New Testament, it is not to refer to a building or an institution. It is, ref it is to refer to God's people. Actually, the original English translation referred to not church, but congregation. It is only in later translations that we have moved from this ecclesia, this congregation concept, to use the word church. And we've somehow confused it, I think, in many cases with church as an organization, church as a Sunday morning meeting. And I think it means so much more than that. And so actually, I thought maybe just helpful to rephrase our myth a little bit. Maybe the question is not, do I need to come to church to be a Christian, but maybe the question is, do I need to gather with God's people to be a Christian? Do I need to gather with God's people to live out my Christian faith? So let's look at what Scripture tells us when we ask the question that way. I'm going to look at a passage from Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 to 25. It'll hopefully come up on the screen. It's quite a long passage, so bear with me, but I'm going to read it for us. It says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most high place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is His body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for He who promised is faithful. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love 
and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, all the more as you see the day come. Now, friends, I spent quite a lot of time looking at this passage, reading various commentaries. One of the things I discovered about the book of Hebrews is that we actually don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. We don't even actually know for sure who it was addressed to. But we do know that it was written to a church or to a Christian community that at the time it was written to them was undergoing severe persecution. They were being pushed, encouraged to abandon their faith, to walk away from it. We know that because we encounter in various verses in Hebrews words like, hold on, persevere, hang on unswervingly to the hope. And so we know that the people to whom this was written, they were going through some really tough times. If you then look at this particular passage that I just read for us, in my English translation in the NIV, the heading just above this passage is this, a call to persevere in faith. That's what this passage that I just read to us is all about. So it's as if, it's as if the writer is saying to us, this whole book is about hanging on to your faith, about persevering, but this passage, this chapter, this is the focal point of this call to hang on. So persevere. Persevere in your faith. And so as I read that, as I read that heading and I thought, yeah, we too as a church are going through a tough time. We too as a church are finding these challenges. People around us, you might be at school and you think, where are my Christian friends? Sometimes we feel alone in our faith just like those original recipients of the book of Hebrews. And so this passage, I think, really has something to tell us, to encourage us to persevere. And the writer does that. Sorry, I've got to keep putting my glasses on and off here so that I can actually read every now and again. But the writer does that in a number of really interesting ways. He, he breaks up this passage in two parts. The first part is, it's a few sentences in which the writer actually tells us about some, call it biblical, theological truths, things that we can use as a foundation, stand strong in the knowledge that. That's how this passage starts. And then it goes on, once, once the writer has established those truths, he goes on and he says, and so let us. Let us do this. Let us do that. So, so let's just look. What are those truths that, that the writer shares with us? Well, the writer says, since we have confidence to enter the most high place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, a new and living way. This is referring, friends, directly to the fact that Jesus died for us on the cross. He opened a new and living way. There is no longer anything 
that separates us from a relationship with God. We don't earn it. We can have confidence that we have it. It is there. There is no further price that we need to pay. The price has been paid. I love this reference to the curtain. If you know the story of Jesus dying on the cross, it says, as he breathed his last breath and died, the curtain in the temple was torn down from top to bottom. It was torn. It was destroyed. It wasn't opened so that it can shut again. It was torn. It's gone. There no longer is a barrier between us and our Heavenly Father. I must move this mic. Thanks, Randy. Is it bothersome? Is it better? Kind of. There we go. I'm moving around too much, apparently. Okay, thanks. Through the blood of Jesus, we have direct access to a relationship with our Father in heaven. And then it says, it goes on, it says, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Jesus didn't just die for us and then say, right, now get on with it. He stands there, he stands there watching over the way, watching over us, giving us the Holy Spirit to strengthen us, to empower us so that we have, and that's what the writer is trying to tell us, a strong foundation in which we can stand firm and then hold on to our faith. And then comes part two of this passage. It's my favorite part. It's called an exhortation. Long fancy word that means an urgent call to action. This is not a friendly nudge. This is not a light suggestion. This is if you want to persevere in your faith, then this is what you need to do. That's what the writer is about to tell us. And he says three things. He says, let us, first one, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. I can say a lot about those sentences, but two things I want to mention. I love the reference here to being cleansed of a guilty conscience. Friends, how many times do we not confront ourselves with our own guilty conscience and say, I'm too sinful, I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy. It keeps me away from church. It keeps me away from life groups. It keeps me away from friends. I live with this nagging feeling inside of me, this guilty conscience. I'm not good enough. And this passage is telling us there is no place for a guilty conscience in our relationship with Jesus. It's done. We are cleansed. We have been cleansed. The price has been paid. Past tense. Okay? That's the first thing I love about that sentence. The second thing that I love about it, and this ties into our topic of today, it doesn't say, hey, Sean, you should draw near, or you, Anita, you should draw near. It says, let us. Do you see the collective nature of that call to action? Let us 
draw near. As a group. When do we do that? I think we're doing it right now. I think we're doing it when we meet as life group. Or we, when we come together at the community center. Let us draw near with sincere hearts. That's the first call to action. The next one is this. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. I like that word, unswervingly. If you know what it means, it means you kind of, you stay on a straight path. You're not, you know, like a drunk cyclist that you see going through Amsterdam sometimes. You're not doing this. You're going straight. Okay? Unswervingly. When I read that word unswervingly, it reminded me of a fantastic passage from the book of Ephesians. And I'm going to share it with you because, and you'll see this, as I read it, you'll see how it ties into our topic and why this word unswervingly is so important. Ephesians 4, verse 11. Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers... To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So, so Christ himself gave us teachers, evangelists, pastors, apostles and prophets. But I like the reference to teachers and pastors because we kind of hear them in a certain place, don't we? And then he says this, Paul, Paul the, the, the apostle Paul goes on, he says, so once you've reached this maturity, this fullness in Christ, then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by waves and blown here and there. Do you see the link back to unswerving? Blown here and there. We won't be blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their, in their deceitful scheming. I love the link back between unswerving and this passage from Ephesians because it reminded me that God himself gave us teachers, pastors, apostles, evangelists to help us in maturity, to help us avoid swaying left and right, swerving across the path, so that we can hang on to the hope that is in Jesus. Do you again see the link to not avoiding coming together? And then, if it's still not clear enough to you, here comes the slam dunk. And let us consider, this is the last let us, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. Friends, the writer of Hebrews, Scripture is telling us, let us draw near, a collective us. 
let us unswervingly hold on to the truth and let us encourage one another so that we can stay strong in our faith. And what does the writer say? What is the one pitfall that the writer says we should avoid? Don't avoid meeting together. To me, that is biblical evidence that our myth is indeed a myth. So that is the biblical evidence. But let me tell you why I think that we should not avoid meeting together. Let me tell you why I think that from the perspective of the things that I have missed these last two years. And I wonder, as you sit there, as you're listening at home, maybe you've missed some of these things too. I miss my Sunday morning gathering as a moment in my week to disconnect from the craziness of my everyday life. It's great to put that phone away and to just sit here and listen and to worship together. In fact, that's the other thing I miss. I miss worshiping with all of you like, like we've just been doing. To me, I don't know about you, but it feels to me like when I worship... I plug into the power of Jesus. It recharges my battery. I miss that. I miss being reminded that in this thing I call my Christian faith, I'm not alone. I feel encouraged by seeing you. I feel encouraged by being surrounded by you. I'm being reminded that I'm not alone in this. I miss being held accountable by you. Not because you're pointing fingers at me and saying you should do this and you should do that. But because you ask me questions out of love, out of interest. And it makes me think, it checks me. And I miss that when I don't gather with my Christian friends. I miss being loved by all of you, by connecting with you, by feeling that we're in this together, and I miss hearing from my God. In, friend, in short, friends, this is my anchor. You want to know how to hold firm in the storm of life, anchor yourself here. Anchor yourself in Jesus. And that is how we will persevere in our faith. Amen.